This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to an episode of Literary Treks, your official podcast for Star Trek books and comics here on the Trek FM network. I'm one of your hosts, Bruce Gibson, and with me, as always, the wonderful, the fabulous, the bright and shining Dan Gunther. Well, I'm certainly bright and shining now. It's it's Blushing, Bruce. My my word. <laughs> High praise. Thank you very much. Always happy to be on, of course. Uh, yeah, of course. We're always happy to be here, aren't we? <laughs> Absolutely. And it's exciting, too, because this is our last show of 2017. Oh, 2017. Where did it go? I can't believe how quickly this year has gone by. Like, yeah, I just... Didn't we just do our 200th episode yesterday and and... Like, wow, 2017, just gone in an instant. It flies by. Actually, the past two years have flown by because I looked today and I saw that we just recently, we became Facebook friends about two years ago. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. It's our friend-aversary is what they call it. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. I mean, you know, Facebook official. That's, we're we're real friends. That's cool. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I, I would have gotten you a card, but I never got around to it. So maybe next year, maybe in 2018, I will. I wonder if Hallmark has a line of of Facebook friend anniversary cards or not. They should they should work out a marketing deal with Facebook on that. They really should. That would be a great idea. <laughs> they should pay you for that idea. Oh shoot! Now I've said it and it's out there. Ah, oh well. <laughs> oh well. Another missed opportunity. Because <laughs> you know Facebook is listening to literary tricks. You know they are. <laughs> They're listening to everything. <laughs> Well, on today's show, we're going in our feature, we are going to have a really great time because we love talking about the Gold Key comics. And we're going to hit the Archive Volume 4, Part 1 of the Gold Key comics. So we'll dive into those and have a great time doing that. But before we do that, we should get into the news. And I think it was towards the end of September, there was a book that came out for the 30th anniversary of The Next Generation. And it's called Outside In Makes It So. And we have a guest with us today who helped contribute one of the essays or stories or reviews or whatever into the book, and that is Ben Greet. Ben, welcome to the show. Hi, happy to be on. 
Hey, Ben, happy to have you aboard. So, Ben, the official title of this book is Outside In Makes It So, 174 New Perspectives on 174 Star Trek Next Generation Stories, or TNG Stories, by 172 Writers. That's, That's a, right. Yeah. That's almost like 172 or 174. I'm sorry, 174 syllables just in that title alone. Yeah, yeah. It's a long, long title where we've just been calling it outside in makes it so just to keep it nice and short. Yes. <laughs> when talking about it, especially on podcasts, for example. <laughs> the one thing I'm not clear on though is, is how how many uh, how many stories and writers contributed to this. <laughs> Because it's really not clear from the title. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we also want to make it a nicer uh, and an informative title. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ben, how, I'm sure you're not 174 years old, but tell us a little bit about yourself and your Star Trek fandom before we learn more about this book. Yeah, so um, I'm actually fairly recent to my Star Trek fandom. I used to watch it a lot when I was a kid, uh, particularly Voyager and, and Enterprise. Uh, but it wasn't really until the 2009 movie that I got back into Star Trek as a whole. And then it really took off in, in 2012 when I was doing my PhD. I started watching the, the series right from the beginning. Uh, and that really got me interested because uh, I started to see a lot of what I study, which is the ancient Greek and Roman world in Star Trek. And then as soon as that happened... Uh, I've just been watching the series through over and over and getting deep into it and listening to all the Trek FM podcasts. All right. Great. That's interesting how, you know, you're going for your PhD and that kind of gets you back into Star Trek and you're seeing some yeah, parallels yeah, yeah, between what you're studying and what you're seeing in Star Trek. That's really cool. So speaking of cool, this book outside in makes it so and i'm not going through the long title but what what exactly is this so the book uh was done for the 30th anniversary of tng and the editor uh, essentially wanted to get as many people's perspectives on the episodes as possible uh, and so the book collects together kind of an essay from each different writer about a particular episode and their particular take on that episode uh, and there's a huge variety uh, of different perspectives on the episodes we know and love and completely different things than you might ever be expecting. So how did you end up getting involved in this project? What was kind of your uh, initiation into into being a part of this book? So, um, part, so I finished my PhD uh, a couple of years ago and, and now I'm starting to look at the the reception of classical material, so Greek and Roman material, in Star Trek as part of my academic work. And my old supervisor uh, suggested me to the editor because she contributed to a similar book on Doctor Who and the classic Doctor Who episodes, uh, talking about uh, Greeks and Romans in Doctor Who. And so he got in touch with me and I got involved in the book that way. Yeah, and I see there's there are many books. Like you said, there's the Doctor Who, there's a classic Doctor Who and the modern Doctor Who book, and then there's a classic Star Trek book. So this is the yeah, fourth. So of these. He did one, yeah, for the fiftieth anniversary of, of TOS as well. Hmm. Excellent. Well, I see your your story is how do you solve a problem like Utopia? Uh, which is an essay on a season five episode, uh, kind of a hidden gem episode, I think. I really like this one, the Masterpiece Society. <laughs> um so tell us a little bit about uh, about your essay in this book. 
So, yeah, as you said, it's about the, the Masterpiece Society, which um, gets overlooked a lot, I think, uh, and doesn't get a lot of praise. But I really like it because when I when I sat down to watch it in one of my recent uh, rewatches, it became really obvious to me that the, the Masterpiece Society mirrors Plato's Republic in quite a lot of ways. So one of the ideas in, in Plato's Republic is that people are born to do a particular job uh, and they have either a career as a ruler, a career as a soldier or a career as a merchant. And those three careers seemed completely mirrored in the episode The Masterpiece Society. We have the ruler uh, in Aaron and the merchant in Hannah and the soldier in uh, the other guy whose name I've forgotten. <laughs> uh, but we see uh, Plato's then Republic on screen in the episode. Uh, and but then we also see the flaws in Plato's Republic. So one of the things that he uh, requires during the Republic is complete isolation from everybody else. And as soon as that isolation is broken, just like in the Masterpiece Society, the society completely crumbles. Uh, and also, you're not allowed a family unit in Plato's Republic, so you're not allowed a husband or a wife or a child. And basically, love is completely gone. And as soon as Aaron in the episode sees Deanna Troy, society crumbles clearly <laughs> but then the most interesting is that in Plato's Republic he's using the Republic kind of as a metaphor for the soul and how we should be as a soul keeping it in stasis uh, keeping everything the same everything in balance but then what Star Trek does with the masterpiece society and I think probably the best part of the episode for me is that it says if the society is a metaphor for the soul the masterpiece society isn't particularly good because it doesn't have diversity and it doesn't include people like Geordie, who would usually be not included in the society, and particularly in Plato's Republic. The Greeks would discard children with any kind of deformity. But Star Trek tells us we need that diversity, and not only is it good for society, but it's good for your soul. That's essentially what my essay is about. Excellent. I mean, I, I think a lot of people don't uh necessarily look at star trek with this kind of critical eye and and comparing it to classic works and philosophies but when you dig in there really is a lot there and it's really cool to see you know those kind of depths being plumbed here oh yeah and it's it's everywhere uh, it doesn't matter what series you're watching or or what book you're reading there's there's a hell of a lot uh, uh ancient greek and roman ideas hidden away uh, behind that science fiction uh ideas is there a favorite episode of any of the star trek series that really stands out for you oh there's so many but i mean since i study the romans it has to be bread and circuses right <laughs> i absolutely love bread and circuses and since we're on uh, literary treks i love the sequel the captain's honor the tng book oh it's great it's not maybe not objectively great but it's great <laughs> We'll have to put that one on the list to do, let's see, that list just keeps getting longer and longer and longer of books we want to cover. <laughs> Maybe in 2023, we'll get to that one. We'll probably just have to end up adding all of the Star Trek novels to that list. I mean, that's the ultimate goal, right? So It is. We're <laughs> going to get through all 800 books or whatever that's out there. <laughs> I definitely recommend it, if only for the image of Roman centurions on the, the bridge of a, a Constitution-class ship. That's always stuck in my head. <laughs> Wasn't there a Spartacus 
TNG novel. There was there. That's really good as well. Yeah. 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 Gosh, I haven't read that one in a long time. I read that when it first came out. Wow. So what, uh, tell me about, I'm sure you've read at least some, if not all the other essays and stuff. Are they all essays or some of them kind of stories or parodies of the episodes? So, yeah, there's so much uh, different stuff included in the book. So yeah, there's, there's other essays, there's stories, um, and even some artwork, uh, in the book, which, um, in fact, one of the best ones is for a Samaritan Stare. Uh, someone has done the artwork of the plan that the uh, Patleds have to take over and take Geordie LaForge. So he's drawn all their instructions and what they're planned to do as, as his essay. That one's a great one. But then there's just lots of different takes on episodes that we always talk about when you talk about TNG. So my favorite episode of TNG is I Borg. Um, I really, really like that episode. But when it came to write, reading the, the essay, which is actually a story, it was something completely not what I was expecting. So the story uh, by Daniel Zimmerman uh, is about the crew of the Serenity from Firefly watching the episode I Borg before the first episode of Firefly, <laughs> which I thought was so fantastic. And then other ones, they just come out of nowhere. So Darmok, which obviously is a very uh, famous episode of TNG, the, the author, Laura Giuseppe, she writes the story from the perspective of the monster on the planet during the episode and what it is thinking and doing uh, during the course of the episode, which is really interesting. And then there's other essays, like uh, the author uh, for the episode, Sarek, she writes a really touching letter to her father who struggled with dementia, which is really related to the episode. Uh, and that, yeah, really touching and really gets to you. And then even some of the most famous episodes, it's always something a bit different. So Best of Both Worlds is written from Q's perspective, where he's completely breaking the fourth wall of the book and talking to you, the reader, about not only why it was important that he introduced Picard to the Borg, but also that it was important for television in general for creating the idea of a cliffhanger at the end of a season. And he is kind of taking the credit for that development in television history. Oh, that's excellent. That's really cool. Um, man, if so, anybody listening out there who's a Star Trek The Next Generation fan, and I, I hope you are, you're listening to this podcast, this is sounds like a really incredible um, kind of uh, supplement to, you know, those episodes you've watched over and over and over again. And for me, like this is going to inspire uh, another rewatch of The Next Generation with each of these stories and, and essays in mind uh, while I'm watching. So very, very cool. Yeah, it kind of... It it's kind of like chatting to somebody you haven't before who's also a Star Trek fan about each episode because I always find when you talk to somebody, everybody has a new idea or a new insight into an episode and going through this book, you definitely get that, a whole range of different things. Yeah, and there, and as we mentioned, 174 episodes, including the movies, get us to 174. Mm -hmm. We have 174 writers and some of these writers have actually written Star Trek novels like... Keith yeah. R.A. DeCandido, especially mm -hmm. he, uh, I saw on the list here that he did the big goodbye from season yeah. one. So, and Robert Greenberger did unification. Yeah. So. And, and there was a, 
Kelly Fitzpatrick, who was in the um, what was the the fan competition book? Uh, what was it called? The Strange New Worlds book. Right. She wrote a, a story in that, and then she is in this book as well. So that's pretty cool. So it, now, outside in make it makes it so. Where can how can how, how can we get hold of this book? So uh, you get it directly from the publishers, uh, which are at atgpublishing.com slash TNG. Uh, and if you go directly to their website, you can get the book. Uh, and you can also get the TOS book or Doctor Who book if you want that as well. Now, have you read the uh, original Star Trek one book? No, it's on its way, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, I think uh, I'm looking at the price here in the States, twenty four ninety five. So I guess that's the publishers in the United States. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. I, I think I'm going to have to get both of those because like, like I said, inspiring another rewatch and, you know, getting that, those other perspectives, uh, it's a really neat idea. And, uh, I, I did, there was a, a kind of collection of essays just in general about Star Trek a few years ago. I, I can't remember the title, but you know, I, I love, you know, kind of digging in deep in, in stuff like this. So, you know, it's really cool to see that. And I hope for listeners out there that you consider picking this up because this is a really cool idea and I think a lot of fun. And not not even just a lot of fun, but, I you know, there's a lot of important ideas in there that I'm sure are should be shared. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of, lot of personal stories and and interesting stories as well. The Firefly one really took me off guard when I read it. <laughs> I'm looking at the cover. It says edited by Robert Smith with a question mark. Is that what I'm seeing? Yeah, that's his real name with what, the question. What, why a question mark? I don't know. I never asked him. <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of accepted it and moved on. <laughs> that's really interesting. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> I'm questioning who the editor really is now. <laughs> well, we'll give a shout out to Robert Smith uh, on this one. But uh, so, Ben, if people want to find you somewhere online, where can we find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at B underscore greet. And that's like greet, like hello. Uh, and then I also write a blog, uh, which is at drbensblog.wordpress.com, where I write about uh, Star Trek and the ancient world. Uh, but also about various other things to do with the reception of the ancient world and popular culture. Great. So atbpublishing.com, that's where you can get the book. Outside yeah, In right. Makes It So, 174 New Perspectives on 174 Star Trek TNG Stories by 174 Writers. Whew. Yep. <laughs> so just you can also Google search Outside In Makes It So, and I'm sure you, anybody can find oh, the yeah, book that definitely. way. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> that's a long title so um well ben thank you for joining us i'm looking forward to reading what you wrote and what everybody else wrote i, I agree with dan i think when i watch an episode of tng i'm just going to go straight to the book afterwards and read it you always need an excuse for another rewatch <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> awesome well thank you so much for coming on and it's definitely been a pleasure talking to you about this and uh you know i know we're past christmas but you know this is still maybe a great gift to get somebody uh, your trek a trekkie in your life, or you know to have on your coffee table while you watch TNG. So well, yeah, and stuff. thanks for having me on. Uh, it's been great to talk about uh, this stuff, and great to talk about Star Trek as always. As always, <laughs> yeah. So have you ever read the old Gold Key comics? 
Oh, I, I wish. I've been waiting till I get to the end. So uh, I've not watched all of Enterprise yet. I'm trying to finish it before I start getting the uh, the the monthly comic deliveries. And then it's going to be right diving into it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we're going to do. We're going to dive right into volume four and the first half of the Gold Key Comics Archive volume four. So we're now here in the feature. And the thing I like about this feature is that we're talking about the Gold Key Comics. I actually think this is one of my favorite parts of doing literary tracks is to go through these old comics and talk through them. It's I, They're just so much fun. It's definitely <laughs> always a bit of a riot. I mean, it, it breaks it. It's different. You know, it's a different view of Trek. It's a different take on Star Trek. And it's always nice to kind of break things up and look at something that's a little bit outside the norm. And for everything you can say about the Gold Key, Gold Key comics, they are outside the norm. <laughs> they are. And, you know, and I think I mentioned a few episodes ago that I have the volume one of the comics that came out in the UK back in the 60s. And mm-hmm. they're just the same way. There's just, but the earlier versions you can get the more ridiculous and funnier they are. And now it's like we're in the uh, we're in volume four of the Star Trek Goki archives and we're going to do part one. So we're going to do the first three issues that's in that book. And then we'll do another show or part two where we'll do the last three issues. So these first three issues are issues 19, 20 and 21 when they were published back in the 60s, early 70s. I, I forgot to even look up to see exactly what year these were published, but I think it was like 69 or 70 or something. I think these ones were 70 or 71, if I remember correctly. Okay. I just, yeah, glancing at the, yeah. <laughs> oh, here we go. Oh, oh no. I see it too, 73. 73, okay, yeah, you're right. Wow. Yeah. So so they got, they got a little more like less... Silly, a little bit. <laughs> <But> still silly. <laughs> yeah, they, these ones they they are they're still very different, but they are hewing a little closer to what we know as recognizable Star Trek. So, uh, the character likenesses I think are a lot better, and I th- I feel like the plots are a little closer to something we might see in TOS. You know, there's less uh, completely eradicating the surface of a planet to kill some plants or something and a little bit more. Oh yeah. I could see them doing this in TOS a little bit. Well, the first issue has the title, the haunted asteroid. <laughs> Does that sound like a TOS title? though? Not <laughs> so much. TV definitely. Uh, <laughs> definitely. The title is very gold key. Like as soon as you read that, you're like, okay, we're back into this. <laughs> <laughs> right. The haunted asteroid. So we have the Enterprise approaching this asteroid called Mila XA. We think it's XA and not 10A or... Or Mila Za. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it's in the star system of Delta. Yes, the Delta star system. Uh... And speaking of Delta, I just got (laughs) gold medallion status on Delta Airlines. Thank you very much. Congratulations. (laughs) I lost it and then I had to stop traveling for a year and so I gained it back anyway. (laughs) But <laughs> this is in the star system Delta. And there's this memorial of Emperor Muro III. And it's for his murder bride, Princess Salia. Saina. Princess Saina. 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 Yeah, something like that. Saina. Yeah. 
I like Saina. Saina. Because <laughs> there's a bunch of E's in there. Kind of almost sounds like Satine from Star Wars. Anyway, sorry. No, wrong franchise. Yes. <laughs> there's been enough Star Wars lately. We need to get back to Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, what? what's Star Wars? So there's 200,000 robots that built this memorial. And then these thieves tried to steal. And one of the thieves is survived and is driven mad. And he says, I can sail in the Mercury Fountain, Momsy. Will you save me from the nasty ghost? I've been, so this is a bit of an aside. I've been watching a lot of the Netflix series, The Crown. So I totally imagined this in like that very posh, British accent. Can I sail in the Mercury Fountain, Mumsy? Will you save me from the nasty ghost? <laughs> it's just the Mumsy was was very. Uh, I picture this, you know, British scientist who, uh, yeah, did not fare too well against this asteroid. Apparently, this guy is practically naked. He's just like in his underwear <laughs> on the floor, as he, like he's a baby in diapers, and he's holding a sailboat. And he's got a little choo-choo train sitting next to him on the floor, and it looks like a little play duck. <laughs> it's definitely quite an image. And yeah, he's definitely, uh, he's in his tidy whiteies and uh, yeah, <laughs> it's not much more I can say about that image. He's been driven mad. He still so does anyway, his the, hair impeccably though, so you know, that's good. Um, it, The hair's impressive. <laughs> so the Enterprise picks up Jay Nordyke who was sent to Myla XA to put an end to ghost stories. That's his mission. Put an end to these ghost stories. Mm -hmm. And then he knows Jim Kirk. And when he sees him, he's like, Jimmy boy. So they must be close. They're good friends. And then Dr. Crisp is there and points out that, that Nordyke was there for four days, but only remembers three of the days of him being there. Yeah. On the on the asteroid. I have to say that revelation, that was, that was interesting. That was cool. I liked how they revealed that with, you know, the interview and he's like, and on the third day, you know, I signaled and waited for the ship and they came and picked me up. And that was that. It's like, Oh, thank you, doctor. Okay. And they walk out and Kirk's like, mm, you caught that too. Didn't you? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, four days. He was there for four days, not three. That was a nice yeah. little reveal. Some clever writing in this story. Yeah. Well, then she decides that, you know, he needs a psycho probe that's needed now. <laughs> so during the probe, his memories start to frighten him and it prompts Kirk to visit the asteroid. He's going to go check it out. Oh, well, of course. I mean, what else is a swashbuckling heroic captain going to do? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I think the art, I'm just inserting this right now. I, I feel like the artwork has gotten better over time. And we've said this, I think before, but mm -hmm. I mean, the art's actually pretty decent in these comics. Yeah. Especially the, the close-ups on the character faces, I think look really, really good. Uh, the one thing, and again, this is, you know, stickler for details, huge Star Trek fan thing. They, for some reason, the artists are like pointed Starfleet uh, sideburns. No, 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 no. Everyone's going to have big square sideburns. None of this pointy Starfleet sideburns for me. So, yeah, I hadn't noticed that, but you're right. That's interesting. I wonder why they didn't do the pointy stuff. Hmm. No pointy <laughs> sideburns. But, uh, okay, so back to the story. Dr. Crisps states that she wants to join the landing party, but Kirk warns her that Myla XA turned Nordyke into a weak, and she's like, 
and he didn't complete his sentence. And she's like, sister? Now, what does that mean? Yeah, I. <laughs> this really confused me here. I don't know why she makes that leap. I feel like there's something missing. Like maybe the story was changed or rewritten there or something because there really seems to be something missing there as far as I don't know why she would assume that would be the next word that he would say that that doesn't make sense to me. I, I don't get that at all. I didn't know if it's a sexist comment that, you know, he's basically saying that, that Nordyke became weak, like a woman yeah. instead of her completing a sentence saying woman, it's a sister. Yeah. And it's sister is just, that's a really odd choice. I don't get that. But, uh, but this was 1973, so yeah. maybe that was pretty common. I, I don't that know. That could I don't think be. So. Um, now, don't get me wrong. There are very sexist things in this story that we will get to because, wow, I, I was kind of like amazed at some of that stuff. But this one, yeah, it seems like an odd leap. And uh, yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm not sure. Sister, that seemed really odd to me. So you have a sister. <laughs> Back to Star Wars reference again. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> it's getting okay, so everywhere. On the asteroids. <laughs> I know, they're everywhere. The ghosts arrive, warning the crew, go back, go back to your ships. Then the ghosts disappear. But along with Scotty and McCoy, they disappear too. Because they were all going to start camping. But now, no time to camp. We have to go find Scotty and McCoy. <laughs> so then we have zombies. Yeah. So this, but these aren't really zombies, though, right? <laughs> this is odd, yeah, because we get you know over the over the communicator that they're being attacked by zombies, um, and we see later that they're very obviously you know fifties sci fi looking robots, you know, like that typical mechanized man robotic creature that you know from fifties sci fi, kind of like Bender from Futurama, like that style of robot almost. Yeah. And like, yeah. oh, okay, so there must have been some robots that were, you know, disguised as zombies or something that those other guys saw that we didn't really see. But then later on, they're like, it's those zombies again. I'm like, wait, what? No, those are robots. What? What's going on here? Well, because not only do they call them zombies, but even at one point they call them the walking dead. Yeah, like... I don't know if there were some changes made to this story and they decided with the art to go a different direction than they did the first time, the first pass of the story or what, but I don't know it. Yeah. That really took me out of the story there. Well, I like how they carry Kirk and Dr. Crisp. Like they're just babies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a pretty good image as well. For sure. They spray them with something. The robots spray with like this gas that they pass out and then they carry them and throw them in a dungeon. And guess what's in the dungeon? A bunch of skeletons. I mean, it actually looks like an old haunted, you know, dungeon with the, you know, all these bones laying around. Mm hmm. Yeah. Which takes us into part two of the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, so, yeah, they leave us on the cliffhanger here where they're stuck in the, uh, I, I mean, cliffhanger in terms of a comic where there's an ad and then it starts again. But they're, yeah, they're trapped in this dungeon basically with all these skulls, kind of like something out of the episode Cat's Paw, you know, very Halloween looking. Yeah, I thought the exact same thing. And it's funny because when they wake up, you know, Kirk's like, oh, my head, all oh, that gas left a ton of pain in there 
And then Dr. Chris says, I believe what I believe we have what used to be called a hangover captain. <laughs> and I thought that was interesting. What used to be called a hangover. Like we don't have hangovers in the 23rd century. <laughs> <laughs> so this is kind of another way in which these stories and even the original Star Trek series always tried to do this. Like, Oh, we're in the future. It's different. Uh, so, you know, Oh, we used to have these things called hangovers. I'm thinking of, uh, I think there's the episode, the Savage Curtain, it might've been where, uh, somebody says, I think it's, I think it's Abraham Lincoln in that episode when he says like, uh, do you still use minutes? And Kirk says, oh, we can convert to it. And I'm like, what are you talking <laughs> about? You've used minutes for two seasons up till now. What do you, but you know, it's like, oh, we got to sound like we're futuristic and we got to be in the future. Oh yes. Before the cure for the common hangover was found in the mid 22nd century, you know, way back when those primitives used to deal with hangovers. <laughs> yeah. As far as I know, synthahol was not common in this time frame. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to say, you know, Kirk Scotty can tell you what a hangover is. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I, you got that right, lad. It was green. <laughs> <laughs> we used to drink this stuff they used to call it green <laughs> we used to get hangovers we don't have those anymore so they escape <laughs> I'm moving on so they escape and find the skeletons of the missing thieves so all these skeletons are like you know part of these thieves that have been on this asteroid for years hundreds thousands of years or whatever and um, all of a sudden uh <laughs> All of a sudden, Scott, Scott, all of a sudden, Kirk hears Spock calling. He's like, you know, Kirk's going, you know, Spock, are you there? Answer me. Hello. And Spock's like, hello. Hello. We're here, Captain. And he's like, it's Spock. I'd know that emotionless voice of his anywhere. <laughs> yeah. How can you tell it's emotionless of just going, hello, we're here, Captain? <laughs> well, and especially because using standard comic book nomenclature, he yells, hello, we're here, Captain, but there's exclamation marks everywhere. <laughs> so, <laughs> because it's a comic, every sentence has to have an exclamation mark at the end. So it's not entirely emotionless. <laughs> oh, and also, yes. okay, so coming up here, they escape from this, they, they get through the door, and I love how they get through the door. Um, Kirk takes off a, a mini bomb, they call it, that's hidden yeah. in a button on his uniform. Okay. Yes. Two things. So they carry around explosive grenades in buttons on their uniform. Number one, that seems weird. Number two, when have we ever seen a Starfleet uniform with a button on it? Or is this maybe from his fly? And he's kind of spending the rest of the episode holding his pants up because he's removed the button or something, because I don't recall ever seeing buttons exploding or otherwise on these uniforms. I, 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 I don't know. Well, I can't even tell where the button was. I can't tell. There's one frame where it looks like maybe he's put the button in his, in the palm of his left hand, or is he removing the button from his sleeve? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's, well, it's an odd choice. <laughs> it is. I'm just imagining the writer sitting there saying, oh, how am I going to get, you know, Kirk to get that door down. Oh, wait, he needs a bomb on him. I'll put it in a button. Perfect. Even though they don't have buttons. But like you said, it's probably the button on his pants. 
Yeah, like that's the only button I can think of because, you know, maybe there's buttons on the back pockets of pants, but we know famously <laughs> the uniforms do not have pockets. So <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> but yeah, I guess he's just holding up his pants for the rest of the story now. Yes. So then they find this. So they get, you know, Spock and, and Scotty and everybody, they find them. They go down this elevator or a lift, whatever you want to call it. And they go down six miles below the surface. And there she is, this centuries old Empress Saina. She appears. <laughs> yeah. So basically, it's revealed that. She has this genetic um, mutation, I guess, that allows her to basically be immortal or close to immortal. She lives a very, very, very long time. And her husband, the emperor, found this out and was like, oh, people will think you're a total freak. So I'm going to create an asteroid for you and lock you in there. And that'll be our love nest. And I'll, I'll join you soon. But, you know, we'll hide away from the universe because, you know, living a long time, people are just going to, you know, think you're a freak and ostracize you. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, it was a little odd. It's just all of a sudden, it's just like, oh, you know, people are going to think you're a freak. So we're going to just lock you away somewhere <laughs> forever. <laughs> oh, thank you, sweetie. That's great. I'm really and happy. And when I die, that. you can just stare at my dead body there for yeah. the rest of your life. <laughs> I will enjoy you all by myself in this, you know, love nest that we build. And after that, I won't give any thought to the rest of your nearly immortal life. I'll just, you know, you'll be good there. It'll be fine. What? Like, I, I'm literally rendered speechless by this. I don't understand. Who came up with this? <laughs> I don't understand either. I mean, she looks like she'd be a nice lady, too. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Think of how wise you'd be after living that long. Like she could be a sage. She could, you know, dispense wisdom on her planet. She'd be like Yoda. Like, oh God, it just happened again. I'm sorry. Star Wars. No. <laughs> so then the zombies or really robots show up. And I mean, what the heck? Scotty's got like super <laughs> strength. He goes and he just like goes to tackle a robot. Then he like just picks it up high above his head, swings the ro these. Now you gotta remember these robots, they're like, you know, one and a half times bigger than the humans. So these are tall, you know, steel robots. And Scotty's picking it up over his head, swinging it around, going, <laughs> spinning him is no piece of cake either, he says. And, I mean, just tosses him into all the others. <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe he was in the Olympics for the caber toss or something. I don't know, because we learned earlier someone is in the Olympics. I think it's Sulu. I don't know who. But anyway. Um, and yeah, Scotty's like, oh, I was a wrestler. And uh, yeah, like, dude, that's like half a ton. You're lifting a Volkswagen Beetle at the very <laughs> least. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> I think we need Scotty in the TV series, The Walking Dead, and oh, yeah. <laughs> handle those zombies in the same way. <laughs> <laughs> These okay. aren't zombies. They're not even made of metal. <laughs> what? <laughs> but they're green. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, the, we got to get to the best part. 
Actually, it's not the best part, but it's oh, the most boy. interesting part. Okay. <laughs> so Sorry. they run to escape. <laughs> they go up the elevator. We scrap the elevator and Dr. Crisp comes out because, you know, they run out the elevator to try to get back to the Enterprise. And Kirk's like, you know, keep running, Dr. Crisp. That's an order. And she says, no, I won't go. It's certain death. Kirk says, you prefer the living death of imprisonment? And then he slaps her across the face. Sorry about this, doctor, but I'd do the same if you panicked in the water. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yep, just just winds up and open palms slaps her. And not softly by the looks of it. Like he's turned her head and it says, whop. And uh, it, it looks pretty violent. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, she's, yeah, they're, they want to leave because, you know, that they could get killed. So they are in a hurry to get to the Enterprise to get out of there. And she's just like, no, you know, I'd prefer to stay here and not, <laughs> you know, take the chance of getting killed. And he's like, yeah, but if you stay here, you'll die of imprisonment. And he just goes, whap. Boy, I would do this to you if you were in water, too. What a weird thing to say, too. <laughs> it's it's almost like he's justifying it. He's like, I, I'd do this if you were panicking underwater as well. And so I think he's trying to say, I'm saving your life here, which I, I mean, I guess he kind of is. But she wasn't protesting that much. She says no. she says the one thing and then Kirk responds to her twice and then hits her. <laughs> Like she wasn't continuing to scream or yell or run away or anything. I I don't know. It's really mm, weird. It's it's abusive. It's, and then it's it gets weirder at the end when they refer back yeah. to it too. <laughs> yeah. So they they they're heading to the ship and there's this fountain that shoots out flaming liquid. But they get by that. They get up to the ship. And <laughs> she's like, "Oh wait, hold on." <laughs> Someone in the ship says to Kirk, I think perhaps you have an apology for the captain now, Dr. Crisp, or says that to Dr. Crisp. And she says, I do indeed. I'm afraid I lost my head back there. Thanks for finding it for me, even with your fist. And Kirk says, save the apologies till tonight. My table, officer's lounge. Uh, <laughs> that's all I have to say to that. So, I mean, you know, they, they get away in the ship and the asteroid blows up. Which is why they say like, oh, you owe the captain an apology. We will, we all would have died. But really? <laughs> and then when Kirk, you know, turns it into, you know, hitting on her, he goes from hitting her to hitting on her. And it's just, yes, it's gross. Like <laughs> She's like, I'm so sorry, but thanks for hitting me with your fist. And he's like, no apologies. My place, my table tonight, officer's lounge. And then Sky responds, Ho, ho, me thinks the captain is feeling a wee bit human, lads. And it's even a little <laughs> bit worse than that. He doesn't say no apologies. He says, oh, you can apologize to me later yeah. at my table in the officer's Make lounge. Make it up to me. I'm like, ugh. That, I, don't, I don't usually like criticize things too much from the original 60s track, but this, this is gross. Like, that was it disgusting. <laughs> Bad story. Bad, bad, well, not bad story, but bad things in the story. <laughs> yeah. I would say, how about both? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, bad haunted asteroid. Mm -hmm. 
It's it's one of those things where, you know, there's some interesting things in the story, some interesting ideas that I did like, but there were some weird things in the story that took me out of it. And then it just ends on such a sour note that I was like, nah, no, didn't like it. <laughs> Let's see how the next one does. Maybe that will make up and make things a little better. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's called... A world gone mad. You gotta always have haunted or mad or something like that in these titles. You know, we've gotta we gotta have it weird and out there and crazy. <laughs> you know what? So okay, this one starts off. I'm already laughing. This <laughs> starts off with Spock and Scotty. They have to escort quote a pesky schoolboy. It's the Crown Prince Raviki. And he must not be touched. Don't touch me. I am the crown prince. And yet he asks Scotty to carry him on his shoulders as they go for a little journey to, uh, I don't even remember where they were going. <laughs> it was just the, the, the transport site, basically. Yeah, they, had to... they have to get to the site where they can be transported back to the ship because they have to escort this prince to this other planet. I guess he's on this, the current planet he's on right now is where he was going to school. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how he managed to carry him on his shoulders without touching him, but uh, it's an impressive feat, apparently. It's great. <laughs> you know, my grandmother, she used to have a little statue. It was called, what, the little, the blue boy or whatever. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. That's what this prince reminds me of. Anyway, uh, so Kirk explains that the prince's parents were killed in an accident, but General Velas... Vlas, Vlas, has ruled where the prince, while the prince has been in school, this, this general has been ruling the, the planet until this boy comes back. But the Federation fears that the general will not give up his rule of the planet because the prince is supposed to return to the planet and become emperor, even though he cannot be touched. So here's my favorite part of this one. So... As the prince is on the Enterprise, he needs to be entertained. And so, in his pompous way, he tells Kirk that he would like to play some space ball. Surely there's enough room out there to play space ball. Well, sure enough, they suit up in spacesuits, go outside of the Enterprise, floating in space with a bat and a ball and a pitcher's <laughs> mitt, and start playing space ball in space. Yep. Um, okay, so... <laughs> I on the other side of this pa of the page we were talking about the last jedi and I had some issues with some of the physics in that movie. Well, I can't really let this slide without ranting about physics and playing ball in space and you know uh equal and op uh an action results in an equal and opposite reaction if there's no friction and stuff. This wouldn't long story short this wouldn't work. This is crazy and it's ridiculous. But uh, some interesting visuals, I guess. I just wonder if uh, Cisco ever did this with Jake on Deep Space Nine. <laughs> <laughs> They're out, you know, playing space ball just off the, you know, habitat ring. And, oh, they broke the O'Brien's window again. Got to pay for that. <laughs> uh, it writes itself. I mean. <laughs> oh, come on, Dad. I want to play ball in space. <laughs> anyway. So not a good uh, idea. <laughs> no, no. So they get to the planet of Nukoli. 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 
just hmm. like love pronouncing these things. And they, they land in a shuttlecraft and a physician comes over to examine the prince, make sure he's okay. But all of a sudden, this physician uh, wants to uh, takes a medical analyzer and leaves it with the prince and they find out later it's a bomb. And mm-hmm. Scotty, you know, with his super strength, is able to throw the bomb far away and it explodes <laughs> and nobody gets gets hurt. Mm-hmm. And then we have one of the prince's teachers shows up and he attacks the, the prince. It's like everybody has, as the title mentions, gone mad and is attacking the prince. Why? Why would they do this, Dan? Why? Even we have his sister attacking him with a knife. <laughs> well, they've all come down with some sort of malady that makes them super aggressive at moments. And, uh, but luckily one of the side effects is they must announce really loudly what they're doing to everyone around them. So for example, the, you know, this, this teacher who's been his teacher for many years, you know, says, yes, enter my car or enter the car, enter and die and pulls out a gun. And, you know, his sister announces, she pulls out a knife and I'm going to kill you basically like, oh, well, at least they're, you know, letting everyone around them know what's going on so that they can save them at the last possible moment. So there's that, you know, (laughs) they're considerate that way. (laughs) Well, and then Kirk uh, has been trying to convince the prince that it must be that all these people have gone mad. Even uh, the prince's uh, sister, had mentioned later that she uh, she was upset that she did try to kill her brother, saying that her brain turned into flame. <laughs> and so, you know, everyone's just gone mad. Oh, and, and here it is. Sorry. <laughs> she brings out, you know, gifts for everyone. And for you, dear brother, a knife! And pulls out a knife. And Spock slaps it out of her hand. And, <laughs> like... <laughs> Oh, sorry. I just Spock really slaps funny. it out of her hand and says, and she says, I'm sorry. And he says, save your apologies for later. My table officers. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. And hey, then, and so, then the next story of course will be Kirk sits down with the human resources group and has to go to a seminar about, you know, you don't do that, dude. Don't do that. <laughs> no, no. So they like to slap in this these comics for some reason. So we have uh, the general is secretly monitoring what's going on because, you know, he wants to continue to rule the planet. And uh, so anyway, now it's Sandy's Sander. Wait, Sendai. Wait, what is that? <laughs> oh, San, Sandui's Sandway's Comet. I'm not sure. Sandway's Comet Day, whatever. It's a Comet Day. And this <laughs> is and. They celebrate a comet when it comes through, but this time this comet is coming closer than ever did before. And it showers of, it has the shower of meteorites just wisping of gas in through the atmosphere. And so they assume that this pleasantly scented gas has brought spells of madness to the planet. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's what's causing everybody to go mad is this meteorite gas that smells wonderful. Yeah. And they've kind of narrowed it down basically they investigated and was like, Oh, people started acting mad, you know, around this time. And they went back and saw, you know, what event happened at that time. And yeah, it was this comet and they figured that it's this gas. I mean, they don't, 
do a lot of tests to see if that's the case. They just notice the correlation and like, oh, that must be it. So problem solved, I guess. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or problem identified anyway. Well, and then we move on to part two of a world gone mad. And so the general's troops storm the palace because they're after the prince. And the prince points out that the general used to be a sub-captain that used to shine his shoes. Hmm. He shined the prince's shoes. <laughs> How ironic. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was really odd. <laughs> yeah. No, there's, I mean, little touches like that. Like, there's some interesting writing and, and just, you know, stuff like that, which, uh, I don't know, there, there's a little more subtlety. <laughs> I mean, there's not much about these stories that are subtle. But there's a little bit more characterization in people in these stories than there were in the earlier Gold Key stories. I feel like they're they're creating more rounded characters, at least, if nothing else. Yeah, you know, that's true. The no, motivations are a little better, generally. Except when it's just gas that makes you go crazy, I guess. But other than yeah. that. And again, I don't think they're as silly as the earlier ones, but they're still pretty hokey, pretty mm -hmm. silly. But so they go in, uh, Kirk finds a TV station because we got to get the prince on air to address the people, to let them know what's going on and uh, about why they're going mad. So they burst into the uh, on a TV set and they interrupt a program where someone's in the middle of a ballad called The Girl from Planet 192-B. <laughs> that, that old chestnut. Oh, man. The first time like, I heard that song. Mm. <laughs> I, I love that song. It's like... The girl from planet 192B, the girl from planet <laughs> I'm pretty sure that, that that song was sung by the duo Cylon and Garfunkel. And, you know, that, that's my guess anyway. Sorry, I'm blatantly stealing jokes from Futurama now. It's, yeah, it's where my head's at. <laughs> I understand, totally understand. Well, then he, uh, but he, the prince goes to address everyone and, but boom, signal is knocked off the air and there's a crowd of people outside and they're all upset and the prince comes out and they start attacking the prince while Scotty and McCoy, they suit up in vacuolators to suck up comet gas that's out in space. So while this is all going on the planet, Scotty and McCoy are in space with vacuolators, like vacuums, <laughs> vacuum cleaners, sucking up that gas in the space as they're floating around. Because they want to study the gas. Now this, I kind of love. Like, I love that they're paying close enough attention to detail. So earlier in the story, we had a game of space ball. That's ridiculous. Okay. No. But here, they've put enough thought into this that one of them actually asks, wait a minute, how can we suck up the gas? There's no air in space to suck up. So, like, these wouldn't work. And it's like, oh, well, it contains a little bit of air and it blows it out and then sucks it back in and that's how it captures the gas. I'm like, oh, cool. They've put some thought into something that I, as a reader, reading this, wouldn't even have even thought of. I'd be like, oh, yeah, they took out vacuum cleaners and sucked up gas. That's fine. That's I guess that, you know, that, that would be fine. It's a comic. I'm not worried too much about it, but they've put enough thought into this that they're like, we need to find a way to explain how this would work. And I kind of got to give them props for that. I mean, yeah, it still definitely. wouldn't really work, but I like it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're at least trying to be at least somewhat scientific about it. Not just, 
We're going out with Hoover vacuums and <laughs> vacuuming outside the space. So. Yeah. Well, and then they go back on the ship, and uh, the problem is that McCoy got a whiff of this stuff, and uh, he starts to go mad, and he throws a bottle, and Scotty catches it from breaking because it was the antidote. <laughs> he can't break the antidote. Yeah, so he, then, he goes a little mad, then he snaps out of it and creates the antidote, and then goes to smash the antidote. Right, so this right. Is a very intermittent. It's showing that this is a very intermittent problem. So it's you're not you're not crazy all the time. You're just occasionally very violent and kind of crazy. And then Captain Lorca from Discovery shows up. And how did they know in 1973? No, I'm kidding. No, 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 no. I'm just kidding. None of that's in here. So, okay, so back in the planet, the crowds are now shooting things towards, you know, shooting guns or whatever to the Prince and Kirk and Spock and everything. And the Prince, <laughs> I'm a little confused by this. The Prince removes his shirt. Now he has no shirt on. And he decides that this will show that he demonstrates that he comes in peace and bears himself to all the weapons. Mm -hmm. That didn't seem like that was going to work. But <laughs> just in time, a shuttlecraft zooms in and sprays the antidote over the crowd. Yeah. So one thing that's kind of been going on over the course of this comic, especially through the second half, is the prince seems to be really coming into his own. He's, you know starting to become admired by the enterprise crew. He's no longer just the, you know, spoiled brat. He was at the beginning. He's showing, you know, bravery and honor and giving speeches that, you know, remind the crew of people from history of earth. And, you know, so he's kind of on this story arc that he's becoming fit to be the leader, uh, which is good. I mean, it seems to happen very fast, but okay. And uh, yeah, that's kind of how it culminates is he, bears himself to the weapons that his people are wielding to show them that he is not afraid. And, uh, you know, the people buy it. They're kind of struck awe by struck in awe by this and like, Oh wow, that's amazing. Uh, but the soldiers who are loyal to the, the general guy, they're having none of it and they're kind of about to kill him. But yeah, like you said, then the shuttlecraft sweeps in and cures them magically. And I mean, so it's it's kind of funny because the, the shuttlecraft comes in and sweeps the cure around and then we have two panels and then the story's over. And they're like little half panels too. Like they really, they push this one right to the end for, you know, there's no wrap up whatsoever basically. It's just, they cure everybody. Everybody goes, oh my God, we were going to kill the prince and Scotty's saying goodbye to the leader. And the leader says, oh, you can stay and be my, uh, you, we, you could stay and, what does he say? Oh yeah. He um, can make him a Baron or a Duke and they could play space ball. And Scotty's like, Oh, that sounds great. But, uh, no, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Oh, what a shame. Scotty are buddies now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except Scotty is very obviously like, Oh darn. That's yeah. No, I can't shoot. Shucks. Oh, darn. well, bye now. <laughs> I got to go drink something green. Exactly. Well, so does this redeem Gold Key Comics for you after that previous issue? It's got its issues. It's a little weird, but the story I feel holds together a lot better than the previous one did. And and I found myself actually enjoying it. And uh, yeah, I, I think this one 
is a more cohesive story. I mean, I know we're sending the, setting the bar very low for these comics, but it's a cohesive story that makes sense. And, you know, some interesting characters and some interesting stuff. And yeah, everything's wrapped up, I think, pretty satisfactorily. I, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. And it's not as sexist as the other oh. one. And yeah. uh, <laughs> it's um, outside. Of the, I mean, the space ball thing is kind of funny, mm-hmm. but... I mean, it's an interesting way, visual. Like I, it I, is. I enjoyed it for that. I mean, it would be kind of cool to go in space and play some kind of game. I mean, I don't know if you could really hit, use a bat and hit a ball, but <laughs> I mean, it would be kind of fun. But the rest of the story is, you know, makes it's not as wacky. Mm-hmm. I should say so. And if you connected with that ball, like you could set some kind of record because, as we know. You know, an object in motion in space stays in motion. So it would just keep going and going and going. Right. So if you go to catch the ball and you miss it, oh, is yeah, it a home run? <laughs> if you didn't bring any more balls, you're done. Like, that's it. <laughs> well, now we have the last of the first three stories. And as I mentioned earlier, the last three in this volume four we'll cover on another episode. So we've had our asteroid of zombies. And we've had our world going mad. This time, we have the mummies of Hydus 7. We have a mummy story. And these are mummies that, spoiler alert, also kind of are robots in a sense. (laughs) (laughs) So the Enterprise has to transport an alien mummy from Hydus 7 to the Federation Alien Life Studies Institute. And just See, this uh, is something we just, haven't heard this in Star Trek before. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, this is this is kind of interesting. And just for everyone listening, that's mummy M-U-M-M-Y, not M-O-M-M-Y. So this is like the the Halloween, you know, ancient Egypt wrapped in in uh in wrappings mummy. <laughs> Yes, and also just to clarify that these are not mumsies. Right, exactly. Mummies, <laughs> not mumsies. <laughs> so we're going to transport the mummy. So Spock and McCoy are on the planet because they're going to take the mummy away in a shuttlecraft so they can you know, transport it to this studies institute. And there they meet Dr. Stephen Moore. And they introduce Dr. Moore to one of the Enterprise crew members, Dr. Moria Starr, and she is the Federation's interstellar archaeological expert. I'm so glad we have her. That That's awesome. I kind of almost want to warn her about how Kirk treats uh, women doctors who are, you know, specialists coming to do something. But uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they have to transport the mummy. He's in this electronic sarcophagus and it to, that protects it from cosmic rays that are passing through the ship's hull. Now, that kind of bothered me. I was like, wait, if you're in the ship, there's cosmic rays passing through the hull and passing through you all the time? Yeah, and I kind of also, they were like, they wanted to use the shuttlecraft to transport it up to the ship because they're worried the transporter will damage it. Like... If like McCoy's on this landing mission, he's like, wait a minute. Are you saying I was right? Like We should not be using the transporter. We're worried about a mummy getting damaged. But yeah, we'll just go through the things all the time. We're living, breathing people like what the heck? Come on, guys. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just worried about those cosmic rays and the transporter all at 
the same time. It's just yeah. too much. There's too much going on. I don't know what to do. As McCoy would spa- would say, space is disease and danger wrapped in darkness and silence. And solar flare comes up and kills you immediately. Space is just too too dangerous. <laughs> Cosmic rays are passing through the ship's hall and through our bodies at all times. <laughs> I think McCoy has a point. I yeah. That's scary stuff. <laughs> so we're on the ship. We have the mummy there. And we have two security officers that are just kind of hanging out outside the door where the mummy is. I guess they're just kind of you know on duty watching things. But they look kind of <laughs> kind of chill and laid back. You know, like, hey, man, what's up? Just uh. hanging out, leaning against the wall. Security officers on Star Trek, especially on uh, the original series, like to lean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> kind like of expect one secret. of them to be like, uh, hey, you check out the new uh, blasters. Oh, yeah. What was that? Oh, maybe it was another drill. I don't know. They're just kind of not paying attention. Or, oh, no, I've, I've lapsed into Star Wars again. I'm sorry. Or uh, they're leaning there saying like, hey, did you uh, see last night's baseball game? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Televised space ball. <laughs> the home run from... 2264 is still going. (laughs) (laughs) We need to go get that ball. Get your catcher's mitt. Let's go. (laughs) So they're watching over this mummy and then it attacks the security officers, knocks them out. And then the mummy goes into the central computer core and starts like hitting buttons. Then he returns to the sarcophagus. And then security wakes up, but they don't realize what hit them because <laughs> the mummy's back where the mummy started from. And, and they're, everything they're doing such a fine. good job of guarding the mummy. <laughs> they didn't yeah. notice the mummy attacked them. Yeah. They're telling Kirk, yeah, everything's fine here. Yeah, we're good. Nothing's <laughs> wrong. Anyway, well, Spock and McCoy, they're with Dr. Moore, and they're exploring the ancient depleted city on the class MZ planet. Now, Dan, you know, you're a very big Star Trek fan. Could you explain to us what a class MZ planet is? Well, a a planet of that particular class, as I know from my, you know, long association with Star Trek, means that it is depleted, stripped of its resources, and is now only an arid desert. So that's what that means. According to the panel in this comic, I've never heard of this term before, but they do a good job of explaining it, I guess. So it's like a class M planet, but depleted. Right. So the second letter is the last letter in the alphabet because they've used up all the letters, I guess. (laughs) So it's depleted. That makes sense. It's a class M planet that is the last place you'd want to go to. So we use the last letter after the M. Mm-hmm. The one that's just before that would be in class MY planet. And it's the kind of planet that if Sulu were going by, he would look at it and go, oh my. <laughs> Whew, that was a tortured joke. That was hard to get there. <laughs> as soon as you said MY, I'm like, where's he going with this? And then it hit me right away. It's like, is he going to do oh my? And- <laughs> And then you go, and Sulu, I'm like, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> oh, my. So <laughs> they find this chamber. 
They go down to the lower chamber where they find three more mummies. Spock says it was once a cell for prisoners or guinea pigs. <laughs> I, I wasn't. I, I'm assuming he's not meaning literally. <laughs> I know. I was I like, I can't tell what? if these skeletons are people or guinea pigs, but I'm assuming he's obviously meaning um, subjects of experiments. Probably. But, yes. More yeah. than likely. Unless on Vulcan, guinea pigs are humanoid form that, would look like those skeletons. Well, apparently, I, I according know. to Amanda, uh, there are teddy bears on Vulcan that are, you know, have six inch fangs and are huge. So that is true. That is true. So as they're down in the chamber, a security officer bumps a button, not a button on a uniform, <laughs> but a button <laughs> on a console. And all of a sudden, the mummies, those three mummies, come to life. <clears throat> Here they come, the mummies. And so everybody uses their phasers to fire at them, but that doesn't seem to work. And Spock now cannot reach the Enterprise, which then he determines that the Enterprise is no longer in orbit. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. I, I I liked the way that this is written, that that's how we discover it as well. So, you know, it's interesting because basically that uh, that mummy that got up and adjusted some stuff and then went back to bed has sent the enterprise off out of orbit. Uh, and it's cool that we don't really find that out until Spock makes the realization. And then we join the enterprise again. They're like, Oh, we're out of orbit. What's going on? That was it's a cool way to reveal that. Yeah, it was because it's not like they showed it happen. And then we see the crew on the planet like, then find out. We, like you said, we're finding out with them. Cause when Spock says, Oh, the, the enterprise isn't, in orbit. I was like, what? How's he know that? Why, why does he think that? And then, yeah, we get to the next page and it's like, oh yes, the mummy programmed the enterprise to leave orbit. Wow. That's pretty interesting. And it's on its way somewhere that takes them through Romulan space, where as they say, the Klingon empire are supporters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, I, that was, that was interesting. The, the, the Romulans are supporters of the Klingon empire. So that's why they're dangerous. I'm like, mm, okay. <laughs> and then we, uh, the mummy that's on board starts attacking security officers again. <laughs> <laughs> but then yeah. they put a stop to him too, with electrical wires. So yeah, this, this is interesting. The, the mummy, I guess is part machine uh, because he plugs himself into the engineering console. So this is kind of cool. They're like half machine, half human. And they have these weird force fields when they fire phasers at them. This all seems very familiar somehow. It's like resistance is futile. They're Borg with wrappings. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they're mummified Borg. And, and they do refer to them properly as cyborgs in this um, in this comic, which of course is, you know, half human, half machine, which is where the word Borg comes from. So, you know, it's really interesting actually how close this story hews to the, uh, the idea of the Borg, because as we'll learn later too, their whole mission is to create more of themselves by converting the people around them into cyborgs as well. So very interesting. A lot of interesting parallels 
Do you think the writers of the next generation got the idea of the Borgs? Or I shouldn't say Borgs, the Borg from this comic issue? I highly, highly doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is interesting. I mean, you know, that idea, it, it, it's kind of an extrapolate, a science fiction extrapolation of the whole zombie idea, right? Like zombies go around and then they bite you and turn you into a zombie and then you join their mission to convert other people. And uh, it's just that in a science fiction setting. So I can see how, you know, more than one person would come to that same idea in a story. But it's just it's really interesting how closely this follows to what we know of the Borg later as well. Yeah. And I would say just because of what we're saying, if anybody gets a hold of this book, uh, I would recommend reading this just because this is the 1973 precursor to the Borg that we know later that started in the 80s. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if Gold Key Comics were considered canon, I think this is a really cool uh, idea for where the Borg could have come from. You know, obviously it doesn't work. It doesn't fit with other stuff we've learned in other series. But, you know, you change the look of the cyborgs in this. Like, eh, we could, you know, could kind of kind of work i think i would say if any of the novel writers or even the comic writers are listening to this episode i challenge you to somehow work this story into the borg i would love to <laughs> read something like that <laughs> that would be pretty cool <laughs> so the enterprise is moving at hyperspeed to their doom where dr star presents the senior crew with the microfilms from the ex excavation site so we find out the, that Hydus 7 was a dying world that was drained of resources due to overpopulation and unchecked technology, and all the technology was then outlawed. But the science ministry altered their dying king and made him into a cyborg, which they can control. So the people of the planet revolt because he is now a machine. So the king orders all the people to become cyborgs and be programmed for specific purposes. And only the king and three others were converted until the people won to die on their own terms. Interesting. So, I mean, like even that could be the origin of, you know, the Borg leader, the Borg queen, you know, like the one original, you know, it's a queen rather than a king when it comes to the Borg. But still, it's it's interesting that like even the stuff they added later for the Borg, you could kind of squint and make it fit in anyway. And again, you know, just going back to something earlier when we were saying about the um, the mummy, yet cyborg, is taking a wire from its stomach and plugging in. It's like, you know, it's, it is. It's like the Borg, you know, just like tapping into the computer systems. It's, it's so much like, the more I'm thinking about this, the more it becomes the Borg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and even like kind of how it happens, like when he plugs in, Scotty's like, Oh, he's plugged into the console and he's operating it without pressing the buttons somehow. And I mean, that's kind of how the Borg work. They inject, you know, their nanoprobes into a system and it takes it over and takes over the functions. Yeah, no, that's, maybe that's what this was doing. Maybe they're nanoprobe based cyborg mummies. <laughs> they could be. <laughs> and the mummy that's on the Enterprise, they, we find out, they conclude is the king that we just were speaking of 
and he is fulfilling his destiny, his directive, and that is to take his people to the stars. So that's why he's taking charge of the Enterprise. He is taking it to the stars, wherever he was going to take his people. But then back on the planet, we have the three cyborgs, and their power cells get drained as they're resisting the phaser fire from our crew, from Spock and McCoy. So over time, they can only take so much, and then they shut down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is, you know, kind of cool. I pictured uh, when the Borg were on Enterprise, and they basically, the way they got through the shields was to turn the phase pistols up really, really high and basically burn through them. It's like, oh, that's kind of cool. Kind of similar there as well. I promise I'll stop just directly comparing these guys to the Borg because they're not yeah. the Borg, obviously, but <laughs> there's some interesting parallels. <laughs> that's, yeah, all, that's all I'll there's say that. about that from now on. <laughs> well, what you can compare now is we see a Romulan scout ship that's going to attack the Enterprise, and it doesn't look like any scout ship we've ever seen from the Romulans. No, it's definitely a, a different design. It's kind of, uh, kind of bullet-shaped with, I would say, three... Um, pylons with short stubby nacelles on the ends of each of them coming off of it it's an interesting design i think it's kind of cool but yeah definitely not like any romulan chip we've seen <laughs> so maybe it will show up in discovery because we've seen some klingon ships we've never seen on that series too that's very very true <laughs> hey if this comic can inspire the borg it can inspire new romulan ships yeah why not <laughs> <laughs> So Dr. Star points her phaser on Kirk, saying that the mummy is too valuable to harm. Okay, you think Burnham did something wrong? This is... <laughs> yeah. So <Not> good. <laughs> these comics, the way they portray the woman scientists who come aboard to, you know, do stuff, not good. This is, yeah, ugh, I, do, I do not like the way this is written. <laughs> Yeah, she's just like, put some, right in, you know, going to shoot Kirk. It's like, what? He's trying to stop this mummy. And she's like, oh, no, you're not. Mm -hmm. I'm taking over. But anyway. So uh, Kirk, of course, has to get physical with her and restrain her. And Yes, because he uses electrical wires. He cross circuits. He does a short circuit on her. But then they also short circuit the mummy then with a power feedback overload. <laughs> It's just saying. apparently, according to Scotty, he doesn't know what's happening to the mummy. It's gone wild. <laughs> <laughs> He's kind of in the background being electrified, doing some sort of electric boogaloo dance or something. But uh, yeah, that mummy's not having a good day now. So, uh, by the way, and then we see a panel again of the Romulans because they're getting ready to attack. And of course, the Romulans look different. They're almost mm -hmm. little yellow skinned and they've got buck rogers helmets on except for the commander who she's got no helmet on but she's got a patch over her eye yeah it's an interesting look here and i was i was kind of wondering like have they gotten the romulans completely messed up like what's going on but there is one shot from behind the romulan commander facing forward and you can see she does have like vulcan type ears and stuff so i'm like oh okay they're not they just kind of took the helmet idea from the original series and went full bore with them because they've kind of got these huge fins on them. They're almost like uh, Roman legionnaire helmets or something without the big brush on them or 
Well, I was going to say, wasn't there an earlier issue some while, sometime back that we saw that the Romulans looked more Roman? Oh, that might be. Yeah, that's kind of ringing a bell. I don't remember. I don't know if it was in the gold key or something I saw in the old UK ones that I'm reading. But I, I know there was some issue from back then, like in the late 60s while the series was just starting where they're doing comics and they made Romulans look like Romans or Mm -hmm. very Roman-like soldiers. My guess is it was an earlier gold key issue because that sounds very familiar now that you say that. You know, our crew wins the day, of course, because they reprogram the cyborg, the mummy, and, and have it, and they reset the Enterprise to be controlled by the crew. So they got control of the Enterprise back. And uh, because of that, they're able to escape the attack from the Romulans. The Romulans play a very small role. There's like, oh, we're going to attack the Enterprise. And then the Enterprise gets control of the ship. They're gone. And that's it with the Romulans. And then they are able to transport <laughs> all the mummies to the Federation Alien Life Studies Institute. And no apologies are needed from Dr. Star oh, for holding a phaser at Kirk. Ah, uh, boy. <laughs> Kirk and women scientists. This is, yeah, I was worried this was going to go a really weird way here again at the end. Kirk and Um, his women scientists like Carol Marcus. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, so yeah. Um, this story overall, what were your thoughts on this one? I'm curious. Um, to the other two, I guess. I think out of the three, this one's my favorite for the obvious reason we were talking about the whole Borg connection or what's the similarity with the Borg. But even outside of that, um, it wasn't as hokey as some of the other ones to me. Mm-hmm. This one seemed a little more legit. The, the, the three issues we talked about seemed to be at like an upward trending curve to me because it started pretty low with that first story. And yeah, I think this one is slightly better than the second one as well. So you know, I, I enjoyed this story as well. I like the kind of parallels with the Borg, like you said, and some of the, you know, the idea behind the mummies and what they're doing. It's really cool that independently they came up with this same idea that, you know, the writers of Star Trek would later come up with, with the Borg. I'm saying independently, I'm assuming the creators of the Borg didn't get their inspiration from this comic. And I, I, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a very, very slim possibility that that's the case. So I, I would definitely say that's, you know, they came up with them independently. So it's interesting. It was a really cool story. And it, again, this one really holds together. There's nothing that's completely out of left field and seems really weird and wacky. You know, it's a pretty straightforward Star Trek story, which, you know, they're getting better at as we go. When you say completely not from left field, was that a pun for Spaceball? Ah, uh, it, I mean, not intentionally, but <laughs> yes, I guess. <laughs> so overall for part one of Gold Key Archives Volume 4, how would you rate this? This is a tough one because, you know, this, this is always hard to rate because, you know, what do you rate it against? What do you set as the bar? I enjoyed these, you know, there, it's always a lot of fun to go back and look at these And, you know, even though they're getting less wacky, they are still very singularly different from the rest of Star Trek. So I would have to give this one, I think, 
one wild pitch in Spaceball that you spend 10 years trying to find because it fell into the gravity well of a gas giant. And for crying out loud, this is why we don't play Spaceball. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, That's I, my never, rating and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I've never heard a rating like that before. <laughs> Well, I would say I agree. I mean, it's they're just fun. They're just fun to read. You don't really take them that seriously. Um, it's just if you want to have you sit down and take 20 minutes reading and a comic that's just kind of fun and, and dorky and wacky and whatever this and you're a Star Trek fan. This is kind of a fun thing to do. So I would say, you know, I would give this maybe um Five out of ten, no, six out of ten uniform buttons that could explode. Ooh, that's a good rating. <laughs> Are they exploded or unexploded? Are they just they're, they they're unexploded? <laughs> <laughs> they have the potential to explode, but they haven't. Just yet. like this comic, there's a lot of potential in this. <laughs> I like it. I like it. That's a good rating. <laughs> Well, I know it's something that I've repeated a lot tonight, but it's it really is a lot of fun to look back at these gold key comics. And, you know, where else in Star Trek are you going to get ideas like Spaceball and exploding uniform buttons from uniforms that don't have buttons? And I guess, you know, Captain Kirk's sexual harassment seminars that he desperately needs to attend. I don't know. It's almost like the serials of, you know, from whatever, the 40s or whatever, like the Buck Rogers, the Flash Gordon stuff. And you're, it's almost like you're getting a comic that puts, you know, it's like Star Trek in space or the adventures of Star Trek. It's just fun, you know, and you're, you, you want to see stuff like Spaceballs. You know, you want to see all this kind of wacky stuff pop up in the comic and not necessarily you want to see Kirk hitting a woman just because he, you know, feels like, you know, well, she's a woman, he can hit her. You don't want to see that, but it is a reflection of the time. And so it's just kind of interesting to even see how things used to be. And thank goodness they're not that way anymore. Well, so, even in the original series, which is, you know, from the sixties, these are from right. the seventies, Kirk said, there's no right way to hit a woman. So Kirk needs to listen to Kirk. I think anyway, <laughs> he hits women. He hits on women. It's just, it's crazy. He's a hit man. <laughs> it's been fun talking about the Gold Key comics today, but this isn't the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. I actually hadn't watched the show, I'm embarrassed to say, um, but I sat down and I started watching uh, and recording episodes, and I immediately had an idea for a script uh, because I found Data to be the most interesting character. To the journey! So you could have, like, you know, carbonated gog. Carbonated gog. <laughs> I'm trying to understand how this works. So the gawk are presumably a little squishy or juicy on the inside, so you're saying that in order to give them the appearance of life, they replicate it with carbonation inside the gawk. Yes, to make them, like, pop wow. and fizz. Kind of like an Alka-Seltzer, you know? Like pop, pop, pop and candy gawk. Warp 5. And I go into the job interview, and I'm just 
parroting back to him things he said in his interviews, but he didn't know that I was just doing that. I would say, the thing about Star Trek is that you could write it. It's a mystery one week, and it's a Western the next week. And I'm literally, literally, word for word, things he said in an interview. So that's how I always feel. And I joke with him now that that's how I got the job. But The 602 Club. When we're talking about the idea of context in history, I think this is the biggest issue that I see in this film um, and, and with the, the Force Awakens, too. And you put them together because they're going to make a trilogy. Is look, writing 101, if you don't know the past and the future of your characters, you absolutely 100% cannot write their present. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And beyond, that ball is flying. It's still going through space. (laughs) And you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And, you know, if you have the time, leave us a star rating and written review. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, YouTube, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link there as well. If you'd like to help us keep all the shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are lots of ways for you to do that. The best place, of course, is to join in the larger conversation on the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can do that as well. You can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select literary treks. That will come right to Bruce and I. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And you can also find us on Goodreads. Go to goodreads.com and we have a group there and you can check out our bookshelf. It shows us shows you what we are currently reading and what's coming up on future episodes. And you can see even what we read on past episodes. So join in on the conversations of the, about the books on Goodreads by going to goodreads.com and search for literary treks and click join group and we'll let you write in. And we'd like to thank Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shamatella, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for literary treks as well. So Dan, when you're not tackling zombies that are actually robots and tossing them through the air and throwing them and swinging them and whatever else you do with them, where can people find you online? You know, it looks really impressive, but I I think they're a lot lighter than they look, uh, which is, which is lucky. (laughs) I can make, I can make this look good. 
Well, when I'm not doing that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions. You can also find me on Instagram at Kurtrats47 and on Facebook, mostly hanging out in the, in the Babel Conference talking about Star Trek. Now, Bruce, when you get home at the end of a long day and pull off your uniform and toss it in the corner and then accidentally blow up your laundry room because of those darn exploding buttons. And when you're not dealing with the aftermath of that, where can we find you? Well, when the smoke clears, you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me here on the network doing Live from the Edge with Brandy Jackala, where we talk about... Uh, the previous episode of Discovery. So when a new episode of Star Trek Discovery comes on, Monday nights we go live at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, and talk about the episode. Just check that out. And you can find me talking Star Wars, especially The Last Jedi, on the Star Wars Report podcast, which you can find on any podcast app, or go to StarWarsReport.com. And of course, I'm in the Babel Conference, like everybody else is, talking Star Trek stuff. Well, that's all we have for this episode. And uh, until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.